You've been a high achiever all your life and you've got one gear, overdrive. It's an incredibly successful winning strategy until it isn't. Maybe the fires dissipating in your belly and the usual shiny things don't light you up like they used to. Your job's fine and all, it's comfortable and not necessarily worth jumping ship for, but you're bored and there's that little itch of restlessness. Thinking back on what it took to get you here, you're wondering, is this all there is? This is what I made of myself? Is it enough? Because it sure doesn't feel like enough. Though honestly, what would enough even feel like? This, dear listeners, is a case of the meh zone. Or how about this one? You're feeling tired and old and burnt out. You're just done. Think toast and smoldering charcoal. You want relief. But what does relief even look like? Do you have to quit your job and start a cupcake business? Do you need a sabbatical? Do you just need to lay in a dark room staring at the wall for a couple of months? If only you had some direction. Enter Dr. Jeff Spencer. Jeff teaches the champion's mind to some of the biggest household names and elite performers on the planet. A former Olympic cyclist, Jeff knows the winning strategy of going hard and fast. He also knows how to help people make sense of these discombobulating transition points with a tried and tested method. Jeff talks about the lens of perception that activates in each decade, which explains why stuff we cared about in our 30s no longer lights us up in our 40s and 50s. You'll learn about GOCUS, that's G-O-C-U-S, and how practicing Jeff's chameleon eye method will shift you into receivership. More on that later. So strap in, my friend. This is your one-way ticket out of the meh zone. You'll also learn that striving and hyper-focusing are not going to get you where you want to go. It's not the champion's mind. Sidebar, Dr. Jeff is not only a former Olympian, he's also a world-class glass-blowing artist, which is a story for another day. He is a wise, luminous soul, intense in the best possible way. Before we dive in, an introductory hello if you're new here, or a welcome back to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, ex-investment banker turned executive coach. This is a show for high achievers whose lives look shiny and successful on the outside, but inside, you're secretly bored and restless and maybe even burnt out. I feel you because I've been there too, and I've brought myself back from severe and debilitating burnout. These are the leadership conversations I wish I had had when I felt chronically overwhelmed in a big job and felt that perpetual ache of never feeling quite good enough, no matter what I achieved. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I drop us into the conversation where Jeff explains the two mentalities that are hardwired into us. One is the fear-based survival impulse, and second is the seeker side that wants to create a life of meaning, value, and contribution. These two mentalities are in constant tug of war in our decision making. Ready? Let's dive in. Our biology and we're hardwired to survive. That is our first psychological and biological imperative because if we don't survive, then nothing matters because you know, you're not going to win your gold medal anyhow. So let's make sure we care, take care of first things first. And so if we look at our survival biology, there's no disagreement about that with all the experts that it's intangibly there and innately wired into us. Yeah, survival is about self-perpetuation psychologically and physically. 
and we'll do anything as an imperative to accomplish that first. I mean, that's why the brain is encased in a bowling ball cranium. And that's the reason why the spinal cord is in a vertebral column to protect it first. You can do it without arms and legs. I mean, preferentially not, but the idea is that there's a priority here. And so therefore hardwired into us is a biologic response of self-preservation at, at all costs. And so one of the biggest fears that we have is that we fear that we're going to get left behind. We're not going to be able to keep up. There's never going to be a life of value that we can live and have an extraordinary interface with people, places, and things because of that. And that's fear-driven. And those are our fear-based survival impulses. And people are primarily driven by those because they get first dibs at every moment. There has to be a biology that can respond to life psychologically and physically faster than we could think. And yeah, I know everybody thinks neuroscience is everything, but but there are some hiccups in that uh, assumption because I'm seeing you as you were a quarter of a second ago. I'm not seeing you in real time because if the nerves propagate, well, that means there's a space between when it starts and when we have conscious recognition of it. And so the, there could be a split second difference between life and death and physical situations and maybe even psychologically as well. So there is a hardwired biology that works as an advocate for us for that purpose. Like, have you ever said anything very quickly to something somebody said? It was faster than you can think. It, well, how did that turn out? <laughs> Probably not so well is my guess. Well, where did that come from? It wasn't me. Well, yeah, it sure was because it came from you. But the question is, which you? Well, that was your survival self, psychologically creating a defense in a survival response that made sense at the time, but it's certainly not a recipe for creating your own greatness because you can't get there through your survival impulses. It's the same thing. You know, a car runs a red light. Somehow, you know, to turn away from it faster than you could think. You can't think that fast enough, but yet something happens that is absolutely 100% correct. Almost like something was watching and listening that was outside our conscious awareness. And so when we kind of look at that and if our biologic first dibs at life is survival, then that is appropriate, but it's not a mechanism for the other half or the second mentality that's hardwired into us. And to me, that second part that's hardwired into us is uh, we look at the uh, instinct priorities and instinct is a biological reality that has been confirmed and agreed upon. And it's not procreation, it's not food, it's not shelter, but it's seeking, S-E-E-K-I-N-G. I mean, that's what the experts say, not me. And so if that is there where we have a fundamental instinct to seek, what does that mean? Well, we're seeking what? We're seeking completion. We're seeking value. We're seeking meaning. We're seeking contribution. You can look at Maslow had his hierarchy of needs for self-realization. You can look at it through that lens. But the, the most important thing that we need to look at here is that you have two counterpoints that are at war with each other 24 hours a day for control or our decision-making. You have the human mindset, I call it, which are the fear-based survival reflexes that get first dibs, but then you have the seeker side that wants to create a life of value, meaning a contribution that doesn't get first dibs, but it has final say as long as actions are taken from that perspective rather than going along for the free ride to do something that is fear-based that can't take us to where we want to get to. Yeah, I think we fundamentally have to understand that because it's like, if we don't understand that, then life doesn't make any sense in a certain sense, because how do we wrap our brains around that? How do we constructively intervene? Where is the access point? How do we explain us? 
And, you know, this is something that's there, in my opinion, 24 hours a day for our entire life. Every one of us knows if we're honest about it. We have this background anxiety and we have this discomfort where we're never really quite settled. You may have a couple of moments in, in a year where you feel absolute tranquility of being, but this jousting match for control of our decision-making, in my opinion, is like always there. David Brooks is a journalist and best-selling author who teaches philosophy at Yale. I've often referred to his brilliant book, The Second Mountain, in this podcast. I'm a major fan. And if you've never heard of it, here's a quick summary. Basically, when we're new out of university or early in our careers, we're focusing on climbing the first mountain. That mountain of achievement, status, titles, accumulating shiny things, figuring out our place in the world. So on that first mountain, three things can basically happen. Number one, we either succeed after some years and figure out, hmm, this is not as satisfying as I thought, which can feel meh, my words, not his. Number two, we can fail. Number three, something unexpected happens that knocks us. Maybe we get sick or a relationship ends or a business fails, somebody dies unexpectedly. And then we're in the valley between mountains. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to proceed. There might be a lot of pain and suffering in that valley. In one of his books, Brooks quotes Paul Tillich, a theologian from the 1950s. And I'm going to try to get this right. I'm paraphrasing. There's these moments of suffering that interrupt our lives and remind us that we're not the person we thought we were. Those moments carve through what we think is the basement of our soul, and they reveal a cavity underneath. Ugh, good, huh? Brooks talks about moving through this painful transition towards the second mountain, which is less about accumulating status and titles and shiny things, and it's more about being of service. So a lot is shed in that valley. And thinking back to my own burnout, which was definitely a dark night of the soul, I really felt so discombobulated. I think that's the word because I couldn't do and therefore, what was even the point of me? A lot needed to be shed around where my worth was sourced. So in the basement of my soul, there was this fear that I was irrelevant. I was falling behind. I was never going to make it. It was never going to happen for me. And I had to face that I wasn't invincible. I couldn't do it all. I needed to adjust my ways. Ultimately, all of that awareness was freeing and I shed a lot of the pressures of the first mountain stuff but not before it sucked. It felt like the death of an identity, and maybe you can relate. As a coach, I think a lot about Brooks's two-model mountain analogy and the suffering that interrupts our lives and reminds us that we're not the person we thought we were. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I asked Dr. Jeff if he's familiar with some of these valleys and these transition points and how he sees the differences in decades and how things that once felt so important might fall away and open something new. It's so easy to get deeply identified with what you do. And when it doesn't feel exciting and juicy anymore, it's really disorienting. So Jeff, what insights do you have for us about what matters in different parts of our lives? Another observation is that like every decade, there is a different lens that we look at life through that we cannot conceive of as being remotely possible like until we get there. And one thing I've noticed is that humans don't learn anything from history. We've all heard that. 
but also we always feel like we should be farther along than we really are. Why can't we ever seem to feel like it's been enough? Well, that's because, in my opinion, like a time-release vitamin perception or lens of how we make decisions activates every decade. So we, uh, when we have those two uh, features of biology that are hardwired and fixed is part of how we can explain us, then we can construct some processes and some actions to be taken to transcend that, to really be able to identify and cultivate and grow over time our full potential, which is an evolutionary process that is over a lifetime. It's not something that we get to and then we're on cruise control. It's not like that because we're always evolving in some way, shape or form. And so when I go back to this, one of the observations is, is that like in the thirties, uh, that's the decade of conquest. And I've seen this universally to be true. Everybody has had enough success, at least in the high performance world to believe that they can make a life of self-sufficiency and like contribution and acquisition is one of the things that people look at. I mean, that's part of the purpose and what confirms to us that we do have value as a human. And to me, that's hardwired because I've never seen that happen in the thirties. But I also know that when you collect all the stuff, it takes a lot of time and energy and it takes about 20 or 30 years to run through your biological reserve at which time you're empty, you know, because you, you, you're not paying back the debt over those 20 or 30 years. You have the illusion that you're healthy because you feel okay but you don't have an accurate look at what the gas tank really is. And you don't know that because we believe how we feel is how we are. And it's not, it's just how we feel. And so therefore you can see that there's, you know, 20 years of burn into that in the thirties, kids are getting older. We're starting to not like the way we look, we're behaving differently. We think everybody's life is great. Ours isn't. We start to wonder about uh, maybe I PTSD because I've tried so hard too long. I don't know if I want to stay in the game. Maybe I should get out and canoe around the world. You know, maybe let's get a divorce. How about let's let's give that a try? What do you say? You know, there's this kind of restless soul syndrome that that sits in in the kind of late 30s, early 40s. I call that the zone of doom. And so, you know, that's got to get worked out. Then the next decade of the 40s is really about creating order because you don't want to go back to that impulse to try to have too much more because that is not you know, Hollywood's promise is not delivered on the promise. And we know that there's something more in, well, where do we go and how do we find that? A lot of this is biological in my experience here, but most people think that everything is put into us and it's how we think. Well, it's it's more than that, quite honestly. And in my opinion, uh, if we know that this is coming and we can have a conversation about it in advance, so we know the warning signs that what we are predicting is going to happen based upon what the observation is with humanity, then we can do some proactive measures, but most people aren't going to listen anyhow because it's not going to make any sense to them. It's like, well, why should I stop now? Because I got the wind at my back. And then there's the other mythology. Once I get there, then I'll rest and recover. I'll repair my relationships. I'll restore my health once I get there. Yeah, here we are 10 years later, then it's 20 years later. And I just feel like, again, there's a biology behind this. As a matter of fact, I actually had a client. This guy right now, he's 38 years old. He's the man in his discipline. He is on every magazine cover. He's 38. He's got four homes. He's got uh, cars at every home. He's got his own jet. He's got you know five Hublet watches, so on and so forth. But he says, I, I, I'm losing my fire. I'm losing my passion. 
And I'm saying, well, you're actually not because the motivation for what you've been doing has been to prove everybody else that you can do it when they told you that you can't. And that motivation only lasts so long. And you met the shelf life expectancy of that. Those days are gone. There has to be a conversion. And I, I don't think he believes me yet because he just believes that if he pushes harder, he's going to be able to get there and he can't. He cannot run this thing. Jeff mentions the phenomena of I'll rest when I get there to the next holiday, to summer, to Christmas, whatever. This is the arrival fallacy that can temporarily muffle those red flags that our bodies are trying to send up to us in those intense periods of our careers. So maybe you're in the decade of the 30s or the 40s and there's kids and big mortgages and you're in the pedal to the metal stage or whatever that period of your life looks like for you. We're all different. So as Jeff said, those are the years of burn when you can go at Formula One speed whilst living in what he calls the mythology of when I get there, then dot, dot, dot. And as he said, why would someone listen to those red flags when you've got the wind at your back? As humans, we tend to respond to pain. And that might be another aspect of Jeff's biology point. Hey, do you remember Dr. David Udis from episode 59? David has a doctorate in psychology, and he was a senior executive at Disney. He nearly died in his early 40s from pushing himself so hard at work in his late 30s and early 40s. So exactly as Dr. Jeff says, it's so hard to hear when you're in the tunnel of achievement going at pace. David's episode was the second most downloaded last year. I know you loved him. So I brought him back for a little cameo here. When you're in it, it's really hard to hear anything, right? You're in that tunnel. You're, you're driven. You just, you, you don't, you just, you're on autopilot. As a moment ago, we just talked about, it's like, it's an unconscious pattern or signal and series of events that just keeps driving you forward. Except there's a famous scene, well-known old movie, Goodwill Hunting. Robin Williams, and he's talking to Matt Damon, the characters in the film anyway. And there's breakthrough at the end. And he says to the character, you know, they're reviewing some very difficult times in this character's early life. And he says, it's not your fault. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, Mandy, but, and he keeps repeating. He says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that goes on for this extended period, almost uncomfortable period of time in, in the film itself. You're like, oh my God, how many times is he going to say this? But it's only after 20, 40, 60 times that he says it, the kid suddenly breaks down. I mean, completely breaks down. And it's at that point that he had a breakthrough. It took that many times of pounding him with it's not your fault for him to have a breakthrough. Here's why I bring that up. For some people, like I described, my body shut down. That was my breakthrough. And thank God for me, I had a wake up call then because I didn't have much of a choice, but I could have gone right back to how I had been, but I almost didn't make it. And so, you know, breakthrough. In order to get to that breakthrough without it, I think there's a couple of things that we have to realize. Number one, these are things about self-worth. I think they are identification and attachments to, if I don't achieve this, I'm nothing. I'm not as good as. I can't be. I'm worthless. I have no meaning in my life. 
And I'm a big sci-fi fan. Great sci-fi series out there had a big quote, used to say, the truth is out there. But I'd say the truth is within as well. And the truth is, that's not accurate. You, me, we are not only our achievements. There's a very specific profile type on the Enneagram, Andy, you'd know it, that really, you know, has that as its pure motivation. But for any of us, we are not solely our achievements. And I think when we can separate from that, first, just realize it. First, just realize it. Second, if we can get to acceptance before our body or other circumstances shut us down or impact us, if we become aware, we can accept it. Then we can integrate it into our lives. There is some greatness about having that type of drive. There's no question that that can lead to tremendous successes, breakthroughs, creations, inventions. But if you're not here to be able to enjoy them, carry them forward and ultimately survive, then they're not worth it. David gained insight and wisdom on his breakdown slash breakthrough in time, likely in his 50s, which is the decade of contribution, according to Jeff. David didn't leave his role at Disney straight away. He stayed on for a few years, having shifted gears a bit as he stabilized his planet, to use Jeff's phrase, and more on that in a minute. We're switching gears now in the episode to the practice of the champion's mind, starting with restraint and receivership. Let's hear more from Dr. Jeff. I'd also like to say that everything that you're describing to me is 100% predictable. Quite honestly, in, in, in my view of things, because of the way that I partitioned off making sense out of this by every decade, there's a biologic lens that activates itself that we can't perceive of in advance. But when we get there, then there's a change that we can't deny. So again, that's another important side to this. But when we're talking about the conversion, well, the conversion to what? <laughs> because if you can't see what the conversion is, and well, what are we doing here? So in my in my opinion, there's a couple of very important ways of doing this. Number one is that you want to maintain what you're currently doing that fulfills the obligations that you currently have, both personally and professionally. You have to continue to do that You can, as much as you want. And I'll say this too, is that my experience tells me that the greatest impulse that people have uh, by far is the desire to get relief. I've seen people do anything to get relief. Take the money, take the car, take the everything. I don't care. I just want relief. I've seen people get to the breaking point. And to me, um, that that is the most uh, ubiquitous thing that I've seen in, in high achievers at a certain point. And people, they, they just cave, man. I want relief at all costs. Just take it. And so I, I wanted to say that, but because I think that that's an important something that informs us about where we are. So therefore, maintaining the obligations that currently exist, that is not a capitulation of not following your passion. It actually supersedes that by saying that I honor my commitments and as I'm working me out, I will fulfill my obligation to you like as promised. That helps us a lot because despite the tendency to want relief, 
you get relief. I know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to have uh, remorse at a certain point afterwards because you checked out too early and you caved to relief. And that has to do with the uh, uh, the idea of anticipated biology too, uh, in, in my opinion. And so when we're looking at maintaining what I call the stable planet, you got to keep your planet stable in the solar system. And so as you're continuing to foster the relationships that you have and the promises and obligations that you have, that's a huge honor ritual where you're reinstating yourself in your own mind, your human mindset. Remember, we have these two mindsets. Your human mindset is going to say, get the hell out of there. you got to be authentic with yourself. Let your real self go. Where's your passion? You know, are you going to turn your back on this? What are you waiting for? It's like, well, wait a minute. That's like leaving a trail of destruction 10 miles long behind me. That's our human mindset screaming out. That's our primal instinct for self-preservation. There's generally no honor and consideration of other people in that, you know, but the champion's mind says, no, I'm not going to do that. The seeker mind says, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, there's me and I have to be the highest me if that's what the objective is now. And, you know, through that abstinence, I get better. The people experience me like I need to be what they deserve from me. And eventually, then I'll start exploring possibility, you know, which to me would be the side hustle. And so the side hustle where we're exploring what's next, to me, that's a matter of restraint and receivership. The human mind says you got to push, you got to look under every rock to find it. That takes a ton of energy and a ton of time. I'm saying don't waste your time and your energy on that because it's only going to lead to increased frustration. I don't see any future in that. I think you should spend your time handling your obligations and getting and staying healthy right now as you move into restraint receivership. Restraint from what? Restraint from your human impulse to try to throw everything overboard and create connection and feel better at all costs. That's what I mean. You know, you, the champion side, champion mind, can apply what has to go right to keep that in abeyance, you know, for the, for the short term. And while that is happening, then we stand in receivership. What does receivership means? You know, receivership is the state of being where we open up our mind, heart, souls, bodies, and spirits to receive insights and revelations that are gifted to our consciousness spontaneously that allow us to consider options that are put into our consciousness. And what I do know is that if we petition to have revelations and uh, options put into our consciousness and we get out of the way and we open up and hold space for that, they will show up. It's a matter of time and you cannot command them into existence. You know, this is a bit of a subservience in a certain sense, which is good for us because then it teaches us uh, an abstinence to start to recover well, physically and mentally restore our relationships simultaneously while we're waiting for these uh, moments of insight and revelation to show up for us to be able to pursue. And I call this GOCUS, G-O-C-U-S. GOCUS is like, it's a, it's, it's a goal focus where we're completing the activities of daily living that we're obligated to in front of us. But in the periphery, we're uh, keeping a sense of awareness to look at every uh, untapped potential or consideration that shows up in our consciousness. We have to kind of be two places like simultaneously, like a chameleon. 
And when we do that, then we start to see these options start to show up. And as the options start to show up in receivership, because if you're trying to chase it, that's like another mythology. Chasing it is hyper-focus. And so the more hyper-focus you get, you know, you kind of shut off peripheral vision and anything that good never shows up in a way that you think that it's going to. It's always some quirky thing that happens. And if we've shut off the periphery of where opportunity shows up and we can avoid preventable problems, if that's shut down, then we're only looking at things that are up close and personal and the shiny objects in front of us. And we're missing the untapped goal that's in the unfocused periphery, which is untapped potential and opportunity. There is a study by Dr. Richard Wiseman where two groups of participants were asked to count the number of photographs in a newspaper. So of the two groups, one group identified as lucky and the other group self-identified as unlucky. So the lucky group completed the exercise in seconds, whereas the unlucky group took about two minutes. It played out like this. On page two of the newspaper, there was a big, bold section that read, stop counting. There are 43 photographs in this newspaper. The lucky group saw that and responded to it. Maybe they were not in hyper-focus mode, looking solely for pictures. Maybe they were open to other insights and opportunities. That's my hypothesis. The unlucky group may have missed it, or even if they saw it, they distrusted it because that wasn't the exercise. They were supposed to be focused on counting the pictures. Maybe this was a trick. Hmm, interesting. Maybe you've also heard of the famous gorilla suit experiment. Participants were asked to count the number of passes between basketball players wearing white shirts on a basketball court during a game. And when the participants were later asked if they noticed that a person in a gorilla suit had walked across the court, most didn't notice. This is what's known as inattentional blindness, which is our failure to process unexpected visual stimuli that we aren't paying attention to. So I'm not making a direct comparison here with Dr. Jeff's work, but there's something about being in that place of softer focus, getting out of hyper-focus. So maybe some of those old beliefs about being a person who sees opportunities or doesn't, or good things don't happen for me. Maybe there's some mindset shifts too, and an openness to success looking different than we might think it will. It sounds like somebody with Jeff's chameleon eye might have been able to stay in the task and catch that there are 43 picks and a gorilla. That sounds like a movie title. Okay, nerdy monologue over. Let's get back to Jeff. Let's go back to Gokas, which is goal focus, you know, where we have one eye on completing the tasks of daily living that are in front of us and the obligations, the autopilot, correct? And that autopilot is an honor ritual that a champion would do to fulfill obligations. Because if you don't do that, how can you feel good about yourself? Because you're not, you know, it, that's not being fair to anybody. And so the other chameleon eye is consciously open to insights and revelations showing up in our consciousness spontaneously. And when it shows up, then we could recognize it as a possibility. So we're kind of in two places simultaneously, which you can be, that's easy. I mean, that's exactly what our side is. We have a hyper-focused side, but still we have another 280 degrees to the side where other things are happening. And I'm saying that in the unfocused periphery, is where the options of future possibility arise. 
But if you're so hyper-focused and you're chasing everything, looking under every rock, trying to make it manifest quickly just so you feel better, you know, then you're probably not going to see it because your hyper-focus excludes you from seeing the gold and the unfocused periphery. And we all know that from our experiences. It's like, do your best uh, insights come when you're bearing down and working? No, that's iterative creation. That's not the big idea showing up. It's not. You know, there's a difference here. And it's in the pause rather than the push where the stuff that really matters shows up. And so, again, in my experience and in my opinion, when we are in a constant state of receivership, and let me say this, is that this gocus receivership, chameleon eyes, that's a supernatural state of being, you know, that has to be cultivated and applied to be maintained. Our natural, remember, there's two parts to us. There is the survival us. There's the champion us that are at war with each other 24 hours a day. That's what I see. It's the way I see it. Because there are two different biologies, and if they're both hardwired, they don't do the same thing. Well, then we can understand the human conflict in a different way. And so as we hold that dual space simultaneously, and we are receptive to possibilities showing up, then we know we're in the presence of an untapped potential for consideration because we have what I call resonant recognition. And we all know what that feels like when you're around a person, place, or things where all of a sudden you feel more energetic and you're more alert and you're more alive and you know you're at the right place at the right time for all the right reasons and you have no hesitation about taking action. Well, that's an untapped potential that should be considered as a candidate for next. So it's a, it's a spidey sense. It's a feeling. It's a, I want to make this more real. To, is it like we, you sense when you're kind of covered in antenna? So is this an experience you had that you could talk us through or anonymously with one of your clients? Sure. Like, how do you get somebody to start to be in this supernatural state of being to tap their potential? How does that work? How does that, it, it's simple. While I'm doing the grunt work, I'm going to have a conscious awareness of things that are happening around me. That's the presence of receivership because you're opening up space for something to land. Have you ever had a good idea pop into your head? Yeah. Did you give it to yourself? Not really. It sort of shows up in a certain sense. That's true. It's almost like it yeah. just downloads at a well, moment I'm when saying. I'm in that's, the shower well, or right. Well, there you go. So if you're too walking, yeah, see, you're too hyper-focused, you're not going to see it. And yet we're told to hyper-focus, hyper-focus, don't take your eye off the ball. I'm saying, well, you know, maybe there's a better option here or maybe a twist and turn that you could take and you're only going to know that if you have two, two spaces simultaneously. Okay, another question. Um, have you ever been in the presence of somebody where you feel exhausted and hung over for 10 days afterwards? Yeah, like I need to lay down in a dark room. All right, well, how did you recognize that you shouldn't be with this person? Well, because of that. And what about the opposite? I stayed up all night talking to someone. I feel like I've got just taken a vacation, gotten back, I'm energized. All right, well, how did that happen? Can somebody explain that to me? Well, yeah, because there is a resonant energy exchange between like meets like. And there is that, as I said, there's a resonant recognition because, as I said, the signs and symptoms of that is that you have an increase in energy. You have an increase in awareness. You have an increase 
you kind of know you're at the right place at the right time for all the right reasons. And you're not afraid to take action. So those are all uh, uh, examples of symptoms that we would have that tell us we're around something that we should pay attention to. I think so, that's the simplest way to say it. So if you were coaching me, for example, yeah. and we were yes. working on building up my chameleon eye and becoming more aware of the resonance, what would you invite me to do aside from pay attention the way that you just did? Sure. You write down things that occur to you. And when you write things down, then it teaches you how to be two places like simultaneously. And as you start to, to log them, then you're seeing possibilities. So we always want to have a little garage that we can park the candidates that show up in our consciousness to do. Yeah, that's an ongoing thing because it, it's like a dream. You know, humans think, oh, I mean, I'll wake I'll remember the dream when I wake up. No, you won't. You know, write it down while you're doing it so you have an archive with enough detail that you're going to remember exactly what it is that you were looking at. So in actually receivership, just why do you not why don't you give yourself 10 minutes more to try to get somewhere without rushing? Why don't you slow down a little bit so you can let the gold show up? I mean, those are ways of setting the stage for these opportunities to show up. I think we have examples of this all the time. Like, don't be here with this person because you're exhausted. You know, be here with this person because you feel more energy. You have a connection with them. That's what we're looking for. And what this also implies with this too is that we need a continuous exposure to people, places, and things that we may not be familiar with because we don't know what's within us. That's, again, a resonant recognition that happens being in proximity to a certain person, place, or thing. Because if we're around the same people all the time at the country club, it's the same conversation. We're not exposing ourselves to anything new because we don't often think of something new to do. It kind of shows up in our consciousness and in our proximity and exposure and proximity to other people, it increases the likelihood of things like this showing up that sticking with familiar will not do. Say you want to take a bold step, like ask for a raise or put your hand up for a big opportunity at work. And you know the minute you walk into your line manager's office to ask that your biology is going to kick in and your mouth is going to go dry as a soda cracker and your armpits are going to turn into Niagara Falls. So Jeff, what do we do? That's the conflict. You just do it. Because you can't command your biology to go away instantaneously. It, it dissipates over time. And you don't need to wait for the armpits, to, the shower to shut off either. You don't. It, it dissipates over time. And so if we know what the classic signs of the uh, agreement or the tendency for the human mindset, our biology, our fear-based instincts to control our thinking, which it does, and we recognize, oh, yeah, here it is again. What is it that I need to do to move this forward in my direction as the seeker, as the champion? And we implement and take action on that. We don't need to wait for that other thing to dissipate because that's a waste of time. So you act anyway. You do it scared. That practice grows your capacity for action. Confidence is not a prerequisite. It's a result. Okay, Jeff, one more question. Hyper-focus on an end goal, as in this is where I'm going and nothing will stop me. There's something admirable about that. But there's also a rigidity to it and a shutting down of opportunities and gorilla sightings. 
So give us some real talk on the champion's mind. How is the champion operating? In the common model, we think working harder, wanting it bad enough, and executing it correctly with precision perfectly is the secret to getting to where we want to get to. And my deal is, is that plans are meant to change. You know, plans are an estimation about a future reality that's not here. And we're making our decisions about what we believe the context will be once we get there. And the likelihood of that is almost like non-existent. And so by the very nature of this, the person that changes, that's what all the prolific achievers do. They adjust in process to the reality once we meet reality. And so that's another high, that's another uh, human mindset mythology. And the reason why I say mindset is because it's rigid. It, it's There's no other way of doing it. It is rigid. It is impulsive. Where the champion's mind can thoughtfully consider, collate, edit, interpret, transmit, store, collate information, completely different way of doing things. It's not a set mindset. That's why I choose the word champion mind rather than champion mindset. You know, it's not an affirmation. It's not a gratitude journal entry. It's where we step onto the battlefield every day where life really happens. And in real time, how are we responding to life as it's really happening moment by moment? I ask every guest to leave a brick of wisdom for you, a granola bar thought, something for you to chew on without all the raisins getting stuck in your teeth, of course. So here's what Jeff left for you. You have to provide yourself with some evidence that change is possible. It doesn't need to be far reaching and massive, but I do feel that the hypothesis of what we believe to be true needs to be challenged. Is it just me or does this episode feel like you've had the most delectable meal and you just want to lay down and digest it for a bit? This is definitely a two-time listen. And while you're digesting, who else do you know who needs this episode in their headphones stat? Thank you so much in advance for sharing. Dr. Jeff Spencer's details are in the show notes and he's already promised to come back to the pod, which I'm thrilled about. Before you leave Spotify or Apple Podcasts and head back into your day, could you please hit the follow button so you never miss an episode? That really helps the show. As ever, thank you so much for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.